After you. Oh, sorry, Roselle. After you. That with, with which we've come in to worship today, uh, that we lift up our eyes knowing that it's to him belongs our highest praise. I think when we come into church, we, we come in with all sorts of expectations. And you hear me talk a lot about expectations because God continues to teach me about managing my own, uh, especially as a parent and as a husband and as a pastor and all these different things. But we all come into church with certain expectations of, well, we've got to do this, this, and this. And if this doesn't happen, then it hasn't gone right. And they might be different for each one of us. But as we talked about over the past couple weeks, I wonder if when we come in to this gathering together, if we even think about what we actually call this gathering together. Uh, We don't call it just church. We call it a worship service. And I wonder if when we come in, do we come in ready to worship? Or do we come in with our focus on all sorts of external things, maybe very important things, maybe very good things, but not the best thing. As Charles Swindoll is so famous for saying, do we keep the main thing the main thing? Well, today in our scriptures, we're going to back up a few days. We've been going through that, that last week of Jesus' earthly life. And last week we jumped ahead uh, to Passover and to the Last Supper. And this week we're going to go back a few days to when Jesus has entered the temple. So he's come down over the hill. Uh, I apologize, me and my microphone aren't on good terms today. There we go. See how long it stays. Um, Jesus has come down the hill, so he's gone up and over the Mount of Olives. He's come down into Jerusalem, and where does he go but to the temple? And as we see in the scriptures, if you go to Luke chapter 19, we don't have time to get there, but what's the first thing he does when he gets to the temple? He clears it. He turns over tables. It's one of the rare times when we see Jesus express truly, truly, vehemently strong emotion. And how come? It was because people, the leaders of the day, had changed the house of God where God was to be worshipped from a place of worship, from a place that pointed people to God, to a place of making money and getting their own agendas across and following tradition and expectations over knowing God. And Jesus came in, he tips it over, he throws everything on its back, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And he recites scripture in doing that. Those words weren't just his. And so when we get to Luke chapter 20, that's the tone. Jesus has begun teaching in the temple, and he does so, it seems, over a a number of days. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a member of the Sanhedrin, so he wouldn't have been allowed necessarily, to be honest with you, to preach up here, because this is only a you know, in, in that time and in that day and age, you had to be qualified. And according to the expectations of man, Jesus wasn't qualified. He was the son of a cat carpenter. He hadn't apprenticed under someone like Gamaliel, like the apostle Paul had. He was a nobody. So when he taught, the crowds came to him out in the outer courts, out where, get this, 
everyone had access to him. Male and female could listen to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And as they did, the crowds grew in number. People kept listening. Even after he throws the temple in an uproar, people come back to hear what he's got to say. And that doesn't exactly go real well with what we call the members of the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the day, the religious leaders, uh, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the bigwigs, because they had their own expectations. And as you look at Luke chapter 20, we're going to see how those compare to who Jesus is and what we can learn from that today. So let's pray together as we open the word together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we see your words in action. We see who you are through the, the words you've given us. And I ask that we would not only see this, but that we would live it out and that we would follow you uh, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that others would see you in us and rejoice. In your name I pray. Amen. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? He, being Jesus, replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, was it from heaven or was it from man? They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, oh, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you but what by what authority I am doing these things. So as the temple, what many scholars call this, the temple discourse, as it continues into Luke chapter 20, the religious leaders of the day begin to try to find ways to trap Jesus, to get him to trip over himself. And then they can prove that he isn't who he says he is. Then they can show and finally have reason to kill him. Because that's what they're after. He has made them feel bad. In their minds, he is a blatant blasphemer. He is not the son of God. And we'll get to that in a second. And they want him dead. They don't just want him quiet. They want him gone. Because he isn't what they're expecting. And so they begin with a question that they think is surely going to trap him. Have you ever been in those settings where you know you're having a conversation with someone that is asking you questions with an own agenda in their minds? And you know, regardless of what answer you give, it's the wrong one. You ever had those? Come on, we all have them. Sometimes we do it. If you've got children, you do it to your kids. Did you do this? No. Are you sure? As you have the evidence in your hand. Yeah, I'm sure. We can do this from time to time. Well, Imagine Jesus standing there watching this play out and the question comes, tell us. And they think they've got him. They think, here it is, we've got him, you know. 
we're going to go. And instead, Jesus looks at them. (laughs) And he says, John, you know that guy? The one that baptized? The one that said, I was coming? Did he baptize from heaven? Or was he just one of man's agendas? Now, what's the big deal? Why does this matter? Well, what was the crux of John's message? That there was one who would follow him. That there is one who would follow him that was even greater than him. That there was one that would be the Messiah, the chosen son of God, the only begotten son. And so if they say, even for a second, that John was from heaven, they're also having to affirm that Jesus is who John and subsequently Jesus has said he is now that he's becoming more prominent. And if they say he's from man, well, they're going to start a riot. And if you know anything about that time and culture, riots, especially from Jews, ended up with horribly disastrous results. Uh, Riots and fights came later on, and, and Jerusalem was eventually sacked. But the leaders of the day certainly didn't want to start a riot. So what do they do? They Instead, they talk amongst each other. They've got all these leaders... And they're talking to each other, and the best answer they can come up with is the one of agnosticism. I don't know. We don't have an answer for you. So we're just not going to take a stance on this point. The religious leaders of the day, the ones that were supposed to be leading the church, it wasn't called the church then, but leading the people of Israel, when Jesus asked them a question, They couldn't answer, and they wouldn't answer. They weren't prepared to give a reason for the hope that they professed because their hope, as we'll see as Luke 20 progresses, was in religion. It wasn't in God, and there was a difference. And so Jesus, seeing that they can't answer his question, doesn't stop. They're all trying to prove that their ways are better than his ways. So Jesus begins by doing something that he does better than anybody. He tells a story. And if we were to look at the story today, we do it something like this, excuse me. Think about this. If you've, if, if, if you've worked very hard and you feel that it's time, at this point in your life, you've got this idea for a new company. And so you decide you are going to build this company from the ground up. It's never been done. Whatever the idea is, there's never been anything like it in existence. And so what you do is you get the idea off the ground. You take out the necessary loans or whatever to get the business rolling. And you work tirelessly to build this creation this business. You bring in the right people. You continue to invest in it and you put all of your heart and soul into seeing it succeed. And when you look at it, you look back and think, this is a good thing. This is a good thing that I can be pleased with. But then you go away and you decide it's in good shape. It's time to take a break. And so you leave your business in the hands of others that are supposed to be trustworthy. You've chosen them 
You've said you've chosen them. You've put the responsibility in their laps. You've given very clear expectations of what they should be doing and what it should look like as they move forward. So you haven't just let go and said, I'm not in control anymore. You've given the responsibility to care for that creation, to care for that and manage with great stewardship that business that you've built into the hands of others. And it should go well. But instead, those that you've entrusted to care for your business begin to run it into the ground. They begin to make choices that are self-serving. They begin to make choices that aren't what's best for the company or the employees or the owner. They do what's best for them. And they set up then their own rules of how things should be done. And those go contrary because they've added on to what the original owner meant, you. And they aren't with the spirit of how the company was to be operated. They've changed the game. And so you begin to get word of this. You read about it in the papers. You've, you've grown quite large. And so you decide to send one of your trusted advisors. And you send them to the company. They work for you. And you send them into the company to try to have a talk with the leadership. And they won't listen. They say, we don't need you. You're, an ar you're archaic. We're going to try. We're actually planning a hostile takeover anyway. So we don't need you. Go away. So the guy gets sent out. The advisor's gone. You wait a little while. You watch how things go. You send another advisor. You send another one to say, hey, can we write this ship? Let's get things back to the core business model, to why it was created. And not only do they kick him out, but they beat him up. They get so angry with him that they throw him out violently. And so you try a third time. You choose one more one more trusted advisor that should be able to go in there, a change agent, that should be able to go in there, speak the truth in love and firmness and change it up. And so this guy goes to the CEO, to the president, whomever, and says, we got to make these changes. And not only do they say, no way, who do you think you are? But again, they beat you up. They beat up your advisor. They put him in the hospital and they say, you have no business having anything to do with this company. Heartbroken, you, the owner, turn and wonder, what else can I do? What other choice do I have? I've sent advisors, I've sent trusted people, and they're just not listening. Well, you consider your options, and your son has grown in stature and in wisdom and everyone at the company knows him because he's grown up around the company he's trusted by many he's your son the one that's the rightful heir to lead the company in the future anyway and so you send him in thinking if they're not going to listen to these other guys at least they'll listen to my son my only son but instead of listening they plan a hostile takeover of a very different sort. They bring him in. They listen to what he says. They might even fake that they want to hear what he has to say. But they choose instead to poison him, to try to hide that they have had him killed. 
so that they could continue to do things the way they want. And see, what they think is that if they are able to successfully kill the heir to the company, it'll be theirs. Then the dad, the owner, is going to quit bothering He's going to quit caring about this company because it doesn't matter. He's lost his heir, so he'll just put it in our hands, right? What kind of logic is that? Is a guy who's just lost his son to the company going to give it up? Or is he going to fight even more for it? Well, I would hope the answer is he wouldn't give it up. And that's where we find ourselves in this parable. Because what does Jesus say? When the tenants saw him, if you go back, Jesus tells the story of a vineyard and of tenants charged to look after the vineyard. And they don't. And they beat up, maim, and kill the advisors and the son of the owner. And the imagery there is quite simple. The vineyard, as is often the case, refers to Israel. God has a tendency to use a vineyard uh, analogy or metaphor when he's talking about Israel. You look at Isaiah 5 and the words are so similar there. And so the Jews right away would have understood who Jesus is referring to. And so when he talks about those that are charged with taking care of the land, of taking care of this prized possession, the leaders of the day knew exactly who Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. And he was saying to them, both prophetically and convictingly, God sent you the prophets and you continually beat them, killed them, and kicked them out and wouldn't listen. And now he has sent your son. He, not your son, he has sent his only son. And you'll kill him as well. And at that, the leaders of the day, well, they looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people, so they couldn't do anything. You see, at that point, there are times in our lives when we come face to face with this question of are we practicing a religion or we are, are we obeying God? We can practice all sorts of religions, but there is only one God and there is only one way to him and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how many rules and regulations you add to it. What matters is the condition of our hearts. And Jesus now twice has looked dead in the eyes of the religious leaders of the day and said, you've got a heart condition. You don't get it. You are killing the very creation you were charged with overseeing and taking care of. What was the role of the Israelite people? To be God's chosen people in the world. To be light in a dark world. Well, they didn't do that. They forsook their responsibilities. So God sent the prophets to turn them back. Then they were unsuccessful. The Israelites wouldn't look and listen. And so God sent his one and only son to the sick, to the dying. And Jesus, in his last kind of public statements at the temple is talking to the church leaders and all the people. 
And he gives them that story that everyone could relate to. And then when they realize, oh, wait, he's talking about us. If it's me and I preach my heart out, I would hope that people would want to turn and say, oh, I get it now. But instead, their hearts had been hardened and they worked even harder to find a way to kill him. Because, as you see here, oops, I skipped one. The stone the builders rejected, we're told about that, has become the capstone. The stone that holds everything together. The capstone is that stone that when put in place, everything holds. Uh, we've got some engineers among us, and it's always amazed me how one beam, and architects as well, how one beam or one little brick in the right spot can either hold up a whole building or if it's pulled out, tear one down. I don't get that. There's literally millions of bricks and tons of beams in large skyscrapers. But just one can bring it all down or raise it all up? Yeah. And Jesus is that stone. Jesus is boldly saying that it's him. I am the capstone. And even there, he's going back to Psalm 118. We've talked about this a couple other times. And look at the, the whole thing. And Jesus knows that they're going to know what he's talking about. And in this psalm, it's a psalm of thanksgiving and it's a psalm of praise. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. <laughs> Jesus knows what he's saying. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Who's done it? The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why is it so significant to look at this? Because out of God's great loving and just care for the vineyard, he gave his only son. Regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in, we can always rejoice in God. We can always find hope in him through what his son has already done. And in, in Luke 20, Jesus is literally spelling it out for them, saying, I am him. I am the one that's referred to here. But there was a problem because the leaders and most of the people of Israel, most of those in Jerusalem and surrounding, had a very specific idea of what the Messiah was going to be like. And the thing was, they thought the Messiah was going to be a lot like King David. That was their expectation. Now, what do we know about King David? Obviously, the, the most important thing we remember about him is that he was a man after God's own heart. And that's hugely significant. And so it's fair. The, the people and the leaders would have expected that. And, and so, fine. But then, when they looked at the life of David, the great king of Israel... They saw this king that conquers all the lands around them. That all those that oppressed him, King David went and took him down. He was a warrior king. This very temple that Jesus is sitting in, or standing in speaking, is called Herod's temple in the day. But David was the, was the one that wanted to build a temple for the glory of God, for the worship of God. And he wasn't able to. Why? Because well, he had blood on his hands. 
He had been the one that had gone out and slain many. So God says, it's not your place to build the temple. Your son will build it. And so Solomon builds this great and mighty temple and it's awesome and it's wonderful and then it's destroyed. And Herod allows a new temple, not nearly as grand, but to be replaced. And that's where Jesus is standing. But see, the, the people and the leaders have this expectation that their king, that their Messiah is going to come in and overthrow Rome. That's what they're looking for. They've been oppressed yet again by a different group of people, and it's obviously not their fault. It's the fault of someone else. Can't be theirs. And so they're waiting on their Messiah to deliver him, deliver them. They don't see that he's right in front of them because their expectations are so fixed that it couldn't possibly be any different than exactly what I think it's got to be because they were so fixed on certain order and certain rules that they missed the heart of the matter, the love of God that had been weaving from the beginning of time the story of redemption together, that a way would be provided through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's standing right in front of them saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And again, the leaders don't like this. And so they begin, they go over into a corner and they decide as you look on, keeping a close on, watch on him, they send spies. <laughs> I like that. They're too afraid to just blatantly come out and ask him questions. So they get spies in there to try to trap him. And it's kind of fun. It's like, you know, and we see it in the world all the time when you're trying to find someone to do something wrong. Politics are rife with this. You send in corporate espionagers or people that try to find ways to blackmail each other. And so that's what the, the leaders are doing. So they send spies in to try to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor or the, the leader, the prefect, whatever you want to call him. So the spies question him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I don't think that was very sincere. They're trying to catch him, so they're trying to butter him up. You know? They're kissing up to him. They want to th they're thinking maybe if he thinks we like him, then he'll be nice and give us what we want. That's what they're trying to do. And so they ask him this question. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, here's the question. We're... We're Jews, and according to your word, we're, our allegiance is to you, right, God? Yeah. Well, then, why would we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And again, they're trying to trap him, because if he says what they think is the right answer, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar because of God, or the answer they want him to give, well, then they could turn him over to Caesar, who could kill him, because Caesar is Lord. It was written on the money. Caesar is Lord. And so... <laughs> they would have taken that and run with it. And if they say, well, you've got to pay taxes to Caesar, well, that doesn't fit with their idea of how it's supposed to be. It doesn't, again, fit with their expectation. <laughs> so Jesus does something amazing. He says, show me a denarius. So I brought some coins. Show me a coin. Show me a piece of currency. And somebody pulls one out. 
And by the way, most of these religious leaders were actually quite wealthy. And so they all would have likely had plenty of money. And so they pull one out and he says, who's on it? Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Well, Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's. Oh, that's a tricky one. That wasn't the answer they expected. <laughs> they can't do anything with that. What do you mean? Well, we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, as we know, God is sovereign, right? And the, the, the Jews of the day would have definitely said, yes, God is in control. God has a plan. And the teachings throughout the scripture are that uh, we, we do obey the governments around us and, uh, and, and we live that way. But now... Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Knowing that the, the tax laws of the day were interesting at best. Remember Zacchaeus? He would overcharge on purpose. And so there was plenty of debate over taxes and whether you had to pay them or not. Much like today, why should we continue having to pay taxes when there's this great surplus of billions and billions of dollars? That's the question you're hearing about in Hong Kong right now. Because again, we've got this surplus. My, my home country doesn't have that problem. We have a very different problem. But anyway, Jesus looks at him and he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's, and to God what is God's. Go back to Malachi and ask yourself the question Is God concerned about the money? No. What did he demand from his people? Right worship and obedience out of love for him. Jesus looks dead in the eyes of those trying to trap him and he invites them to take a bigger view of God. Again, saying, you don't get it. Your hearts missed it. He eliminates the compartmentalization of religion of saying, okay, we got government over here. We got church and religion over here. We got this over here. And he says boldly, everything is God's. They would have gotten that instantly. They would have known exactly what Jesus is saying. It's all his. It's all the Lord's. And with that, which we still follow, hopefully you've all paid your taxes or will when the time comes this year, we continue to follow that model of what Jesus has taught in the church, that we don't separate, that we understand that God can use broken systems and people but ultimately, our allegiance is found in our heart and in who we are and in our devotion, not to a system of government, not to a system of how a church operates, but to the living God, our King and Messiah. You see, Jesus now, he's been asked the question, well, who did John baptize under, man or God? And Jesus gets him. They can't answer then he tells the story of Israel and how they've missed it and that one would die for them. And they don't get it and they try to kill him. And now he looks and they ask him the question about the money and he flips it. He says, it isn't about the money, it's all God's. Give to God what is God's. Well, what does God demand? All of us, our very best. In the system of the day, you know, they're still under the old covenant. 
what did God get? The firstborn, the very best of your crop, of your fruit, of your whatever. God got the best. That was what was to be offered to him. And instead, the people were giving, as we see in Malachi, they were given leftovers. They were given whatever they could find that was sitting on their table, and God didn't want it. He'd said, I'd rather you give me nothing. I want the best. I want your all. And so the, the guys, the leaders, would have again seen that Jesus is speaking to them. And he would have been concerned. They would have been confused because what are they going to do with this Jesus guy? And it goes on because at the very end of chapter 20, Jesus asks another question. And he said to them, how is it, you know, we talked about that expectation of David and the king to be like David, the Messiah to be like David. Well, he goes on and he says, how is it that they say that the Christ, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, a little confusing. We'll get to that. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, this is, this is how the Hebrew people saw that they thought the enemies would be conquered via violence and war. That was the mental image. And I can understand that. But David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? It doesn't make sense. If Isaiah calls me Lord, which he shouldn't, or dad, I'm never going to turn around and call him dad, am I? No, it doesn't work like that. But here, you see this awesome picture that again, Jesus knew exactly what he was saying because the words chosen all the way back in the Hebrew and that Jesus explains, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord there, the first Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. Remember we talked about the fear of God not so long ago? Yahweh, the great and mighty God the creator, the sustainer of all life, said to my Lord, Adonai, different word, different use of the word Lord. My God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And while it was confusing, the only way to understand this passage and understand and know the word the way Jesus knows the word was that they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Adonai is the Messiah. And it's him. It is Jesus. And he's saying about himself that I will sit at the right hand of God. And we know that to be true. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says it, my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus explains the meaning of it and boggles their mind and has the audacity to say, it's me. I'm right here. I'm the Messiah. And he points again to their expectations and their practice. And he shifts it. Then he goes on to talk about marriage and the resurrection to the Sadducees who didn't even believe in marriage or in resurrection. They believed in marriage. And he flips that and saying, you don't even understand the word of God because resurrection is mentioned all the way back with Moses. And he goes on and he says one more thing at the end. As he looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, two little coins, 
And I brought lots of coins today. Okay, you guys see this? Oops. You recognize this? I know, it's kind of very small. This is 10 cents in Hong Kong. Does this have any use whatsoever? Not a whole lot anymore. In America, we're, we're continually talking about eliminating the penny for the same reason. This isn't even worth a little of a penny. It's worth less, or roughly a little less. Okay, so let's say you can put two of these in the offering basket when it goes by, and that's all you can do. But yet some of you out there with bold pomp and circumstance come in and empty your pockets and your money bags. And what these shofar were, the, the shofar were these 13 jars, trumpet-like jars, where the opening, you would drop it in and then it, it opened wider at the bottom so that it could hold all the money. And so these, these wealthy or successful or pious people go in and make sure everybody sees them pulling out all their money, showing it right there. All you see in my wall is receipts. But let's say there's money in there, and, and you just show it off so that everybody can see it. And then this widow. Remember, widows were in a terrible state in that day, as we read later on in Acts, Acts 6. They had no one to take care of them often. And she comes up, and Jesus, seeing the condition of her heart, knows exactly what she's done. And she puts in just two little coins worth nothing. They wouldn't have helped the temple at all, really, because they, they were so minute in value. And what does Jesus say? She gave more than anybody. She gave out of her poverty. She put all that she had to live on. And this is where I believe Jesus brings it all together. And the reason Luke ordered this accounts, these accounts and this temple discourse the way he did, because then he goes on to tell us that Jesus teaches the temple's about to be destroyed, which ultimately in the New Covenant didn't matter because according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, my body's a temple of God. Huh. And so Jesus had gone on to talk about that. But when he looks around the temple and sees this money gathering, and that it's done, if you look just a couple of verses before this, at the end of chapter 20, he accuses, and rightly so, accuses the teachers of not taking care of the poor, the widows, those that need it the most. He said, in fact, you're stealing from them. You're taking advantage of them. And it was the common practice of the day. And he looks at this woman, and he says, she gets it. She has offered everything to the Lord. And that is worth far more than money. You can be as public as you want with your donations and with your money. You can be as steadfast as you want with your rules and your order. But if you aren't offering your very self, your very heart and soul. Mark actually adds in the middle of this section, this teaching, the question of, well, what do I do with my life? And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus added one. 
And then he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark includes that in the middle of this section. Because I think it's right that we understand that this is out of love. It's not out of just obligation. Yes, we do it out of obligation, but it's out of love that we want to obey. It's out of love that we say, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And I can't help but love those in need the most. And I'm going to do everything I can to help them out of love for God. And I'm going to give him all I can. Yes, it's expensive to give your life for the Lord. That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus talks about that earlier in Luke. He says, it's tough. Not all of you will do it. And many walked away. (laughs) But there's nothing greater than in the eyes of God. She put in more than all the others. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all these bits and pieces that are here? And that you look at and you say, well, what does John the Baptist, a parable about the vineyard, a question about taxes, a question about marriage, and now this offering have to do with anything? It comes to give us a picture of our Lord, our Messiah, our King who has been who's entered in to Jerusalem to walk toward the cross where he would die and rise again victoriously once for all, that all who might believe in him would have eternal life, that a way had been made for us to spend eternity in worship of God for his name's sake, not for own, that it's not about our agendas, that it's not about our religion, that it's about God that he is both just and in that great justice loving. And he gave his only son out of love. So what's our response? That's the question here in Luke 21. That's the question. The answer? Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Older translations say this is your spiritual act of worship. So I wonder, how do we worship? Do we come in telling God what we expect Him to do? Or do we come in in every area of our lives and say, Lord, here I am. You are my King, and I will worship you with every area of my life. You are the Messiah, the chosen one of God, him who knew no sin to become sin for me that I might live because he obeyed his heavenly father because he loves us, but he loves his father more. And so he went to the cross, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, to die a painful and horrible death, but he rose victoriously because death couldn't keep him. And now our response can be this. So my question is, how do we respond? Do we come in and say church has to be this, this, and this, and if it's not, we get mad? Or do we ask the question of ourselves, Lord, have I given you all of me? Do you have every area of my heart? Do you have every area of my life in your control? Or am I holding on to something so quick because I'm too busy to let go of this one? I couldn't, you couldn't possibly work it out for your glory because people won't understand. 
I couldn't give you every area of my life because it's inconvenient and it's hard. I couldn't give you all areas of my life because I'm comfortable. And what if you tell me to do something like go to Africa? Cool. Why not? The will of God is always better than the will of man. We know that. But do we live it or do we just say it? He might actually ask you to talk to your next door neighbor. He might actually ask you to talk to your husband or wife and care. He might ask you to change your behavior. Or he might ask you to just wait on him and enjoy him as you grow to be more like his son. Will you do it? Will we be a church that is marked by people that say, here I am. My life is yours, Lord. It is not my own. I will be radically abandoned to you because I am a new creation. We talked about that in baptism class last week. The old has gone, the new has come. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we would be a people that offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in worship to you, that all areas of our life, you see them all anyway. But I ask that maybe for the first time we would lay our all on the altar and commit it to you in your name.